Hi, good, good afternoon, everybody, or maybe it's not a good afternoon for you, maybe it's morning or evening or any time of day. Welcome to the Beyond Autism podcast series. Uh, my name is Andy Swartfiker, uh, BCBA, uh, Director of Services Beyond Autism. Today, we are lucky enough to have with us uh, none other than Leah Fenema Hall, BCBA. Um, and sort of, I guess, without any further ado, welcome to the podcast series, uh, Leah. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, we, uh, we, we met. I can't I remember having our initial conversation. I think it was relatively soon after the first lockdown, so nearly a year ago now. And I it can't remember been. why we why we started talking, to be honest. Maybe I just saw you on LinkedIn or oh no, I do remember. It was your um piece of work that you were doing on uh, expectations for behaviour analysts in the workplace, wasn't it? Or, or something like that? Was it? I can't I can't remember. It could have been the UKSBA speaker series. It could have been you when we to... were shamelessly recruiting behavior analysts into <laughs> OBM. It wasn't that, although uh, you did do that. Um, no, it was uh, <laughs> it was the you had sent through a survey to Nick Barrett, uh, who was at the time at Dimensions. That's right. And I, and I was responding to it. But in any case, there you go. So anyway, enough preamble. Thank you for agreeing to the podcast. It's, it's really uh, fascinating for our listeners, to, I think, to hear about different applications of the science of behaviour analysis. And for those that don't know, Leah's kind of big in the field of organisational behaviour management or OBM, to which most people have heard about, but not a lot of people know much about it, would, it would seem, having spent some time talking to you about it. I clearly didn't know anything. <laughs> so in any case, before we kind of get into the kind of the real meat of this, how about give us a bit of a insight into your history? I guess I, I got into ABA, uh, similarly to most people, which is by complete accident. Um, I went to university for behavioral neuroscience and, and still love that. Um, but I, as a part of that degree, took an intro to behavior analysis class uh, and decided that that just made perfect sense. And this is exactly what I wanted to do. Um, I had the good fortune of attending um, the University of North Texas, which has, at least at that time, it had a really broad program. So I was never under the impression that I was going on to work with individuals or individuals with learning disabilities or any of that. Uh, in fact, I could have done the entire uh, degree program without ever hearing the word autism. Um, but the re the reason that I did is because, of course, uh, you at some stage have to start planning for what you're going to do after university. Mm. Um, so I did get a bit of experience working in in that field with with the littles pretty quickly after my bachelor's, uh, literally two days afterwards, I moved to a different city <laughs> and started working as an assistant clinic director. Oh, wow. Uh, yep. Well, I should say that I had a little bit. I, I worked for a roofing company okay. <laughs> and for and for a trucking company in my younger years um, <laughs> in, in, in administration. So that wasn't a big jump for me. Uh, Although, yeah, for a behavior analyst, that's a little bit weird. But it allowed me to kind of develop both ends. So I started a little bit in the admin bit and a little bit as a therapist. Um, quickly realized that I enjoyed um interacting with people and doing therapy a lot more than admin. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no surprise. So I worked almost instantly. Um, more of my work was with adults than with kids. Mm -hmm. So, you know, speed up however many years. 
I eventually opened my own um, company, uh, which is still open today in Texas. And we work primarily with adults, uh, which is, you know, I'm not sure how it is in the rest of the world, but in where I'm from, it's a very underserved community. Mm. You know, sort of 10 years in, it would have been, or something approaching that, I started to realize that uh, I was really enjoying the business bit um, almost as much, if not more, than the the therapy bit. I, you know, had a lot of conversations with uh, people that owned companies that we worked with frequently, and they would contact me to ask about how to deal with their employees. Not that I had any expertise, you know, officially, other than having done it myself. And at some stage, I thought, okay, I'm going to look into this whole OBM thing. So I, I went out, I found a mentor, um, and through a series of very fortunate events and a lot of hustle, um, managed to get some experience with a quality consulting company so that, you know, I wasn't quite so green. Yeah, sure. And then had the incredible fortune of meeting my now business partner who had been doing uh, human factors consulting and aviation for what had been nearly 25 years at the time. Uh, so we started a company after I'd been only practicing OBM for, you know, a few years at, the, at that point. Um, and, and the rest is history. So we work primarily in aviation. Yeah. But we dabble in, in other areas. Other, other areas. So with that, that, because I think a lot of behavior analysts have, particularly as they kind of go out the management tree and because OBM, I guess in the last I don't know, maybe 10 years or so has become a little bit more accessible. So it appears more at the international conferences that, you know, there are uh, people talk about it a lot more, I think. Did you kind of have, um, I guess, like an, uh, you said you sort of realised you liked one side of the job more than the other. But was there any more of an epiphany for that? Or did you just simply recognise in your own behaviour that that's where you were at and that's what you found reinforcing and then sort it out? I mean, how did it come about for you? It was a little bit fear-based as well as, oh, wow. as reward-based, if I'm really honest. Um, I, I absolutely, it was, uh, you know, it wasn't just a stick situation. It was a carrot situation for sure. Because I love, I genuinely just really enjoy um, the OBM literature and the subject matter and the application. Um, mm. But there was a part of me that um, having been in the field for a while and, and having seen just in the short sort of decade that I'd already been in the field at the time, um, what felt like a narrowing of expertise, which okay. was completely um, just, it, I'm very biased in terms of my experience because I came from a rather broad program. And then when I got into the real world, you know, uh, probably interacted with people who came from much less broad programs who were very much more centered around autism. Mm. Um, but I just felt like the longer that I was in the field, the more that practitioners were only given opportunities to work with um, children and mm. children with autism. Um, those were the systems that were available, the funding streams that were available, the experience that was available. Um, and if I'm honest, I just thought, wow, what happens? What happens if autism goes out of fashion? <laughs> you know? What what do we do as a field? What are our, what's our skill set even good for? You know, it, not because I didn't know that lots of behavior analysts have done lots of amazing things outside 
that industry, but I just didn't, I don't see it. I didn't see it a lot. And so it was a little bit out of fear. It was a little bit out of, I need to diversify my own skill set. Mm. Um, and the offering that I'm able uh, to confidently, you know, say I'm, I'm uh, competent in uh, for myself and, and for the company. So, so that was a big part of the driving factor, if, if I'm really honest. So I guess now we're lucky enough, aren't we, in the field that there are some other applications that are, are becoming more prevalent. We, we did um, a podcast with uh, Dr. Antonio Harrison. I, I don't know if, you, if you've met or talked to him or seen him talk before. He's a really dynamic guy. Like he's um, really fun to speak to. Actually, and he his applications. He has a few. Like he's a, he's a he. I remember what he's saying in his podcast now. But he he runs. A, he's a American football coach. Um, it's like a health and well-being thing. So he's, uh, I think, got a, even like an application in Oculus Quest in the um, virtual reality fitness. Wow, I mean, cool. incredible guy. I mean, one of the things that we discussed with him was around how as soon as he made a departure away from kind of the more formal behavioral ethical terms or, or where the information or the research was shared, that all of a sudden his profile became more appealing to behavior analysts. And I suppose in a way, like as a uh, OBM practitioner, you probably found the same thing. I mean, yeah, I know we've discussed before. I mean, I've done a smattering of what I consider to be OBM at once or over a period of time which was working with a, a large marketing firm with connections through a friend and it was all about their matrices and human behavior and interactions and it wasn't particularly what i don't think you would class as obm but it was just much more around the values of people's behavior and trying to get people to be calmed down a little bit about someone else's bad attitude towards them given what their setting events might be in mm -hmm. that type of scenario but really and truly i think i'm probably particularly having listened to you speak a few times in, in various kind of settings recently, just it dawned on me that I really don't know anything about it. And I think it's probably quite, I think people think they should because they yeah. understand they've studied behavior analysis and there is that underpinning for OBM. But just one of the things I wanted to kind of, I guess, grill you on, if that's not <laughs> just a terrible word, or reference you on is, uh, you mentioned something about the kind of the great cult of behavior earlier mm. today when we were discussing things and also just this what what is the role that behavior analysis plays in obm and then how different is that to being an obm practitioner or a, a management consultant or you know i, I mean I, I guess i don't really know how you would sell your own wares if you like, like what's your title to people that interact yeah. with you as a as um as uh, a practitioner that make things better for companies so so to answer your first sort of question i would say um if you right now are a behavior analyst who's working with children um of any you know uh, with autism without autism whatever um i would just say do you feel prepared to start to work as as a dog trainer hmm. if the answer is no and I hope it would be unless you, you know, you have that experience in your past. The answer is also no, you're not ready to practice an OBM. Sure. Because, you know, like like I say all the time, and I'm kind of a broken record, I I feel like we what we might have lost sight of a little bit is this idea that it's an applied science. So it is great to be fluent in the science. It's essential to be fluent in the science, the basics, 
Um, but what will ultimately become your application environment is a fundamentally different skill set, <laughs> requires a fundamentally different skill set. So, so I think people don't realize how much they have either intentionally or unintentionally learned about people with autism um, yeah. or about the industry in general, about the systems, right? So uh, in the US, we, we uh, accept state funding. So I have a unfortunately depth of understanding around state funding for adults with intellectual disabilities. Mm. That's a, you know, which has nothing to do with behavior analysis. Um, and if you're going to go and, you know, I, I certainly won't be training any animals, including my own dogs, because I'm terrible at it. So I would say if if you're looking at um, at the idea of OBM, it, it's an equally different skill set. It's what do you know about organizations and not just any organization, but what kind of organizations do you want to work with and how do you want to work with them? Um, I'm probably, you know, probably called a management consultant and or a behavioral scientist in my day to day work. And, you know, in, in terms of selling, I would never, ever tell a potential client that I'm a behavior analyst, not because I'm ashamed of it, <laughs> but because they have no idea what that means. Yeah. Um, and at this stage in, in our field's development, if I were to say I'm a behavior analyst and, you know, as a smart consumer, they were to go and look at behavior analysis, right. they might put two and two together and assume I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, not good for business, right? <laughs> no, no. So, so management consulting is, is, pro, is a whole other skill set, right? So understanding organizations, understanding how to be a consultant, uh, these are skill sets that I've I've gone out and I've learned very intentionally. Um, and that's not even making mention of, of the fact that the literature available for OBM, even from our own field, is mm. extensive. Um, mm. So, you know, so, I don't know, some of my favorites, you know, there's the work of Aubrey Daniels, of Tom Gilbert, of Bob Mager, um, Maria Malat, you know, there's, there are, there's this wealth of brilliant, brilliant literature out there that, you know, if, if you're interested, I would say it's great to, to start looking at. What I also always say is try, try finding someone willing to let you play <laughs> with their organization first. <laughs> um, what can I not mess up too much in your organization? Yeah, we'll, with, we'll with proper have... supervision, yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. And we'll, we'll try and have um, maybe a, a list of three or four kind of seminal texts for people to have a look on the podcast link when, when they say just so they can kind of get a taste for what it is that you do. I guess maybe your frame of reference needs to be because it seems that frame of reference for most people who are behavioural analysts tends to be in, in special educational needs probably. Um, yeah. Although to be fair saying that now having spoken to other colleagues uh, you know seeking more applications of behavioural analysis I think maybe that does it a disservice. I mean that there are I think if you work in a certain field, you probably, maybe with the exception of having started working maybe with, with the autistic population, you would assume other things are anomalous. But actually, there is so much going on out there that, that has this, you know, you kind of crack the door slightly and it's a huge cityscape of all these yes. uh, massive, in, uh, you know, kind of industries that just don't, people just aren't aware of, I suppose. Yeah, it's very much that way with, with OBM, it, at least it was in my experience. Um, you know, what I knew that I liked business and I knew that 
you know, I'd been an entrepreneur, if you will. <laughs> um, but I had no idea when I made the decision that this is what I was going to start to study. I had no idea what was out there. I didn't know that, you know, sort of OBM, uh, you know, what, what was the history of OBM? How long has it been going on? Uh, any, any of these things that are pretty critical to have a, a even remotely shallow understanding of OBM. Well, I've, funny enough, I've never, just in terms of kind of, I guess, the science of behavior, I suppose, listening more and more to, or trying to seek out more and more information about it, it's never felt that I'd walk in, if I walked into a room of OBM practitioners, it would probably be a space I feel the least comfortable. Not not just not from a ability to understand it point of view, but the, the the knowledge set is is just far greater than I would even begin to imagine. Having particularly actually having listened to working with you a little bit more closely recently on a couple of projects, just listening to how you kind of put that across and and the the piece you did for the um, ABA forum recently as well was like super interesting mm -hmm. on so many levels and just things I just didn't know was a consideration and or I guess the thinking oh that would be so cool to do in, in different organizations and it does I suppose why don't people know this stuff already I guess you kind of get that feeling quite a lot and maybe that's the behavioral science in me I wish I I wish I had known it I really do and and what I can say with a fair degree of confidence is if you are a practitioner working with individuals and you want to do that for the rest of your career, amazing. You're never going to run out of work. You will be better at your job mm. if you have an understanding of performance management, of behavioral systems analysis, of, of so many of these things that fall under that vast umbrella that is OBM. Um, I find that I'm <laughs> when I, for example, if I consult with somebody from my company in Texas who works with individuals, I bring so much of the knowledge I've gained from OBM to individual treatment because, mm. you know, and it's not to say, I think OBM is, it's a big and it can be a scary looking knowledge set that, that most behavior analysts are lacking for sure. But, you know, I'm kind of a visual person. So if you think about you're talking about the ABAF, we, we looked at um, Rumler's anatomy of performance. Mm. So that paints a really beautiful picture of just how huge a surrounding system is mm. around that ABC that we're accustomed to looking at, that one performer, one behavior at one time. Um, but, you know, equally, uh, if you look at how the minutia, <laughs> right, of of various things you can study that all fit into that three or four term mm -hmm. contingency. Mm -hmm. um, it's arguably just as huge a knowledge base as it is outside, right? So so everything that fits in Rumler's anatomy of performance is is endless, is nearly infinite, right? But equally, um, probably everything that fits in that four term contingency is seemingly nearly as infinite <laughs> which is good though because otherwise you just kind of feel completely detached from it as being a possibility to understand it because at least the the basic principles are there but it sounds like from what you're saying is that you have never more so have the basic principles been I guess uh fundamental but as soon as you kind of then take that if, you, if we want to call that a framework for the for one of a better word and you kind of then 
put that over something like a large organization's performance management and it's no longer single case design anymore and it's now department interactions and different contingencies and and probably punishment in to a certain degree when you start thinking about hr systems or what am i trying to say (laughs) gosh no what i mean is like there are kind of rules that you can't break and there are kind of parameters that you can't change and it's not so much that you're thinking about reasonable adjustment anymore for a a child with autism in in a school environment it's now you can't do that because it's Yes. you know you're in an organization now and it, and, it, and it's either against the law or against legislation it's yeah the, the rules of engagement change depending on the application and that's going to be the same for every every application i think um you know they're just going to look a little different so like if you think about ethics okay obviously if you're working with an individual or an individual who is in any way vulnerable which most of us are um, ethics are hugely, hugely important. It's going to be a topic of conversation. It's going to be, hopefully, front of mind all the time. When you start working with an organization, ethics look different. <laughs> mm. um, it's, it's less about a vulnerable individual. It's more about, um, you know, who knows? It could, it could be a conversation around physical safety um, for an operator or or whatever it is. But but you're depending on the industry, quite a bit less likely to be having just conversations about ethics. Um, and that's just talking about ethics. Obviously, you know, it's they're different flavors of ice cream, right? It's just mm-hmm. <laughs> depending on which which application, um, the sort of really is just stimulus conditions, isn't it? They're gonna be they're gonna be different. What you're responding to is different. What you're gonna have to address is is different. And that's that's you know full circle back to what we were just talking about, which is the science is the same. Yeah. <laughs> the application is radically different. Radic- yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so does it necessarily then uh, usually, I suppose, come down to much larger, I guess, group contingencies than it does down to individual level? Or, or do you kind of take an individual and then kind of extrapolate that to make it make sense for an organizational structure? Or, I mean, how does it work in that sense? Well, I guess with organizations, it's both, right? Um, so it's always in the context of an organization, which is a group. Mm. Um, but it depends on on the problem. You know, it depends on what we're trying to get as an outcome, which, which will inform sort of your level of analysis and variety of assessment, if you will. So mm. there's lots of times that we sit down uh, with one person and get deeply familiar with their reality <laughs> um, at work. And often we would do that because I'd like to understand their reality versus someone else's reality that may or may not be in their exact same role. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, there's there's still a lot of um, understanding behavior as it applies to one individual, but it's usually for the ends of modifying um, organizational outcomes mm. as opposed to modifying that individual's behavior for the sake of it sure isn't yeah. for some reason though i've got i've got office space going around my head for some reason because it's <laughs> that big management consulting thing in there but anyway you can have the stapler it's fine do you know what you know what management consultants have in common with behavior analysts Go on. um we have this is going to be really awful you might have to cut this <laughs> we are not always popular <laughs> right <laughs> we get a, we have a bad reputation we really yeah. do 
Um, you know, behavior analysts are prone to having a bad reputation for, I won't even get into it, reasons. Um, but management consultants are the same. You know, we don't always get a fair shake. It's, oh, here's a consultant again. <laughs> They're going to try They're to change something. <laughs> You're going to mess with my contingencies here. I guess a, a combination of serendipity, really hard work, focus from, from your side of things to kind of get you to today. What what are the type of applications that you, you know, Leah Fenimore Hall is working on right now through Lux Consultancy? Like, wh where are your current reinforces if you like <laughs> yeah right well um we we were really fortunate um in it, when covid hit uh there was a there was a period of time when when everything went into lockdown on on one single day luckily i didn't write down the date otherwise it would probably haunt me annually but on on one single day we had every single contract that we had in the pipeline say okay it's not that we don't want you to do the work it's just that our budget's gone now oh, what day that was oh my God. Uh, do you know and and it was like okay the whole world is experiencing this you know it's not just us so there we we tried really hard not to do the pity me thing um, but we took a couple of weeks to feel really sorry for ourselves. Um, and then it just started to come back. So we had, you know, one quick piece of work that that came to us um, that was doing role analyses. And then before long, we got what's actually the biggest project we've had to date, which is um, the very audacious aim of um, standing up a human performance capability in a global training organization across sectors. So um, we want to be industry lead in terms of human performance in all its various um, facets. And we want to do it not just for aviation, uh, for pilot and instructor examiners training, but also we want to do it for maritime and healthcare and oh maybe defense as well in that particular circumstance then are you acting on behalf of someone else as a consultant if you like or are you you know it's, i know is this, this is the lux system or where's that effect? yeah so this is just this is just lux um and and it really we got that piece of work because um my business partner sits on you know several boards of what have you <laughs> in aviation um and you know, one of the things I love about my business partner is she's about as cynical and critical as I am. And so she was talking to somebody else sitting on the same board about her sort of criticisms of the current state of of uh, pilot training and assessment. Um, and so we were invited to have a chat about what we thought, which is directly against any advice I would ever give anyone, right? You never go in with what they're doing wrong. That's horrible mm. advice. <laughs> Uh, but in this instance, um, they happen to already agree um, and they happen to be in a position of industry influence. So, uh, you know, and, and they also happen to, for, you know, just very good fortune reasons, kind of desire um, a better capability in their own organization when it came to human performance. So, so then we set about what's going to be at least a year long task, which is assessment. Yeah, mm -hmm. like a year of assessment um across the globe what's working what's not working when it comes uh to human performance and, and training in these in these sectors 
So that's what I ran um, ABAF through uh, using uh, Rumler's Anatomy of Performance. And we really have used that, um, you know, it's not like we've had it in front of our face the entire time, but you definitely do look at every single bit of it. So what does, um, you know, what are the impacts of the economy of regulations, you know, aviation and maritime and healthcare, especially aviation being heavily, heavily regulated. Um, we look at the inputs, we look at the outputs, we look at the performers, we look at the processes, the whole thing. And so that's, yeah, that's a huge project that we're working on now. We've got to the stage where we think we sort of know where we need to go from here. And we've gathered a lot of support for doing that. It's one thing, I understand what you're saying in terms of process. Okay, I'm just yep. about hanging on as a, you know, from a behavior, from a scientist, scientific point of view, you know, based on assessment, I'm good with that. But then, <laughs> you know, just in terms of, uh, I guess, maybe reliability, like, obviously your, your data is going to lead you to make some decisions, right? Some interventions, I guess, or some, yeah. you know, plans that will change behavior, I guess, from the point of performance management. So what's your, what's your, yeah, what's your data? So you, so you gather this information. What what does it look like then? Yeah, good question. So so to kick it off, and it, this is probably indicative of the sheer size of the task. Mm. Um, but we start with um, very broad, like cast the net as wide as you can. So we started with a global survey, um, and that gave us lots of really really good information. And the next level of assessment, if you will is given um, a thematic analysis of that survey. Oh, look, we're way out of the comfort zone of behavior analysts now. <laughs> um, but now we're gonna start um, conducting more targeted focus groups. Once we have very clearly not just decided what data needs to be collected, but then we need to go out and ensure that we are able to collect that data because that requires industry cooperation um, of organizations outside this organization. So I need to work with airlines um, and potentially other training organizations to collect the data that I know I need um, to give them good recommendations. So that's actually the next phase. So, so it's gonna take us, we're about six months in now, and it took us that long to figure out who we need to get involved and what level we're really looking at this problem on. The next several months, yeah, uh, will be about getting the traction required um, and putting the systems in place where they don't exist to gather that data. Because, for example, we don't know really uh, highly experienced or expert experience is the wrong word. What highly expert pilots do that's different than less expert pilots and pilots are graded. Right. So if you routinely make a two out of five as a pilot we're not really sure about what makes you so different than a pilot that routinely scores a four. Okay. Um, so imagine how are you gonna get that data? Because right now, if a pilot fails his or her assessment, um, the instructor has to write down why they failed that's data. If they pass or if they have a superior rating, there is no data required. <laughs> So we're going to have to work with an entire airline's training function. <laughs> sure, that reminds you of the BCBA exam. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is why you're rubbish. We're not going to tell you why you passed. 
Oh, I know. I know. It's that, that critical feedback element, isn't it? But that's a beautiful transition to performance management, right? Unless we can define that, unless we know what makes good uh, performance and what makes bad performance and we can objectively describe it, we can't then teach it and we can't uh, then manage against it on a daily basis. So these are things that are that are missing, that are commonly missing um, in any industry. Uh, Aviation is quite advanced in that they've even arrived at the ability to to identify <laughs> that yeah. that's missing because well, they've had a competency. Well, I was going to say, like, you know, going back to your kind of the quip earlier around not being massively popular, but I can kind of you can sort of see why from a certain perspective. Because you think, hang on, this piece of work that you've done is they've passed you the can of worms and you've just opened it, oh, yeah. and then you're like. <sighs> Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. you kind of yeah no I get it so so going my question was misframed then wasn't it because you weren't you're not talking about baseline data in the first instance so much as where do we investigate Is yeah because the industry the industry has great data of some things so mm. we we have a, a decent understanding of accident and incident data on a global scale for sure we know if it's going up we know if it's going down um, but obviously, when you talk about leading versus lagging indicators, that is horrendously lagging. Um, not any less important, very critical that we know that information, um, but we don't, we can't act on it until it's already gone wrong. So that's what makes it a lagging indicator. So what we need to look at is if we are interested in the quality of training, if we're interested in uh, truly understanding human performance and, and all that science has to offer and applying that to the way that we're training, um, which is, you know, quite a commendable sort of goal. Um, it, it requires that we establish data sources that don't exist mm. or don't exist consistently, not to say so, that something. So in terms of, I don't even know if I'm going to use the right terminology here, which is weird for me because I kind of, I can normally do it. So tell me if I'm wrong, this is, you are a good test for me here. So given, can we call this setting events maybe you talked about a global view now all when you say global the first thing that jumped into my head was different cultures yes no there's a there's a there is a definition i wasn't aware of which i found out last week there's, there's culture and then there's environment or, or there's two words that often get interchanged that mean mm. the matter in in obm so how much then if you're thinking about your the area that you decide on is going to be your kind of angle of attack for this kind of worldwide um, intervention, I guess, on, on kind of human performance and pilot training and, and efficiency and stuff, if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly. Do you then have to take into account um, the setting event of the different cultures, whether that be uh, country based, so people's attitudes towards pilots or their attitudes towards society and all yeah. the how the environment takes that behavior uh do you have to take account of how much do you kind of have to get under the skin of you know a well-established airline that is worldwide that has its own this is how we do it all the time kind of yeah like how much of that plays as a as a barrier or a benefit it's cultures is huge when you're doing anything on a global scale it's huge um remember i once famously said like a complete fool um <laughs> to someone who had no experience in behavior whatsoever i said something like you know cult human behavior is the same across cultures and it is the principles are the same across cultures but human behavior as you observe it 
is radically different, <laughs> right? I hear you. Uh, the, the, yeah. <laughs> the motivating operations, if you will, are, are radically different. Um, the principles are the same. But I think because aviation is a global industry and it is, um, you know, it, it, it truly is uh, on a global scale and it's regulated on a, on a global scale, they've already had to deal with this. They're already having to deal with it, not as if it's a closed door and we've done it. That's not the case. Yeah, um, but, but recommendations are written in a way that are very much intended to appeal to the widest possible audience. So if you take a concept like um, IOA, inter-observer um, agreement, they wouldn't use that. They, they've adopted the term concordance, okay. which to me is more confusing, but to them <laughs> appeals to a wider audience. So anything we do, you know, fortunately for us, we're in a position where we make the recommendations and when it comes to execution, we can make recommendations about it, but when the rubber meets the road, I'm going to be long gone. <laughs> um, so, so each of these, <laughs> each of these organizations that choose to take any of the learning, um, it, they will have to adapt it for that culture, and that means, um, you know, even the basic competencies to here's what you need to know how to do to be a pilot. They are translated um, for every organization that uses them for for exactly this reason, which you know has all of the issues attached to it that you might imagine. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Um, I don't know where to sort of park that one, I guess, because I suppose so. You talked about that performance management in in that sense, mm. but you, you know we've sort of spoken about other things that you've been involved with in uh, in recent times or currently uh, around safety programs that, that yeah. you did a bit more locally yeah um so there's a, a uk airport uh that we've done you know a, a few different projects for one of my favorites was uh it's called the safety leaders program so the issue is uh of course you know human behavior why don't the humans do what the humans need to do um and in this case it was uh, quite challenging because what most people probably don't know is when you go to an airport, chances are there will be people that work for that airport mm. and there will be more people that work for other companies who happen to work at the airport. Um, so the person who sort of chocks and cones your aircraft when you arrive might work for not the airport. They might work for a ground handling agency, okay. um, but the responsibility for safety on the apron, on the airfield, is usually with the airport. It is always with the airport. So that can you see how that's a challenge? Because you've got somebody who's essentially, you know, uh, in a, a management position working for the airport, but they are legally responsible for the outcomes of people who don't work for them. I hear you. Cause it, so you've got competing contingencies, I guess. You absolutely do. And yeah, and that's not even beginning to to throw in, um, you know, to focus on turnaround time and hurry up culture. And, you know, there's mm. they don't have a lot going for them. So so what we were trying to tackle is this idea of, OK, how, how do you influence that behavior then? Because you're not writing their paycheck. You know, threatening them is not working. <laughs> Yelling at them seems to be ineffective. What else can we try? So we started something that we called the Safety Leaders Program. Um, and what that meant is 
because this was really important to the airside operations team at this airport, um, they paid for people who didn't even work at their company to go uh, on a short training that we delivered, which was basically to acquaint them to the safety leaders program that we developed. Um, they literally were badged up. They now wear a safety leader badge on uh, when they come to work. And safety leaders, um, so so they get a brief training in human behavior, but it's really more so that they understand why we're asking them to do what we're asking them to do. Mm. Um, and what that comes down to is we gave them a script, right? So so when you're on the apron, what happened before we intervened was you could do something well and nobody would notice. So you could do something safely, it didn't matter. If you did something that was unsafe, you may or may not get caught out. Chances, quite frankly, are better that you wouldn't have anyone say anything to you. So if you were running around with your high vis sort of undone, um, it might be the case that nobody says anything to you. And if they did say something to you, it's very possible for you to tell them to take a hike because you don't write their paycheck, yeah? Um, so what we did is we recruited people from the organizations and gave them a script for what do you do when you see somebody doing something well? What do you do when you see something that you need to challenge for safety's sake? So that's just basic differential reinforcement, yeah. And then we uh, we gave them instructions on how to train everyone that works in their individual companies on how to receive that feedback, which was a critical element. <laughs> um, so now today, um, people have, you know, I'm not saying they say it word for word, but format wise, it's pretty similar. If you are the CEO of the airport and you walk out with your high vis undone, for example, or if you walk past a piece of um, FOD, they would call it a foreign object or debris, right? If they walk past that, if you it, you could be two years into your job, right? And, and the lowest level, uh, you are now empowered as a safety leader <laughs> to say, excuse me, uh, CEO, I think you'll find <laughs> you've just, you know you you've got your high vis un, undone, and here at this airport we have our high vis done up. It's really important because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah, and so then they've been trained to say thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, and that all sounds well and good, but because it's had such strong support by their senior most leadership, um, it's been incredibly successful. They had, I think, my favorite story of all time possibly in my career to date, <laughs> is the um, CAA, the sort of Civil Aviation Authority of the UK. Yeah. They do random audits. Um, and they showed up one time and they actually told the head of airside, they said, D how did you know we were coming? And he <laughs> said, we had we had no idea. What are you talking, how could we possibly know you're coming? And they're they like, I don't know how, but people, <laughs> people are so well behaved out there <laughs> that they had to have been tipped off. Yeah. And I was like, do you know what? That's me done. I'm good. <laughs> I'll see you exists. later. I'm retiring right now. Okay, so now, so now um, my mind is slightly blown because now I'm trying to understand what's the contingency. Because I'm listening to you talk and I'm thinking, yeah, cool, I understand it. But I'm, I'm also kind of imagining the kind of I can get away with it culture, um, the kind of ineffectiveness of rural government behavior in that way if there isn't some form of contingency one way or the other like yeah. you know punishment or um or well the assumption that punishment would increase it which of course we know is wrong but like 
but then what's the positive reinforcer what's the negative reinforcer that, that increases or maintains that behavior so so there's a big cultural and social element to it um like i said if there was one factor that was the make it or break it it's that senior leadership support from all of those companies not just the airport so they um they have another initiative called the safety stack um whereby at least quarterly all of these people are getting together to have a chat for specifically the outcome of safety. Um, they also, if you're a safety leader, you're on a WhatsApp group, right? Mm. Um, and people are on the WhatsApp group all the time. It's really popular. It's, you know, um, hey, on stand, so-and-so, we got a blankety blank. Can somebody get on that? Yes, we can. Thank you so much. It's a really positive, positive culture. So much so that people in this airport, um, it, it's they've almost become a, like, the legend right this airside operations team everyone wants to work for that team at the airport um and it's not just because we put this program together it's probably not at all that it's really uh, that the leadership are so consistent they are so focused on maintaining that cooperative culture they're so steady on rewarding safe behavior um and and not with silly things like trinkets um but but genuinely their their experience on a day-to-day -day basis is vastly different if they are behaving in a way that's safe versus if they're not. So so it's not, it's almost not at all rule governed. It's it's almost entirely you can count on it. <laughs> if you walk out there with your hive is undone, you are going to get caught. There's almost there's very little chance because there are now hundreds, right, of of safety leaders at this airport. Badged up, got, get badged up people with like with their kind of uh, uh, checkbooks. So, are, um, would you be? Is it, is it as simple as a as a as an avoidance of negative feedback that kind of maintains the behaviour? Would you say? I mean, it might not even possible to answer this question. Like, so clearly, the I mean, you, you really, yeah. There's there are so many things that are um, that have an impact that you can't probably nail it down to the one thing. So it's probably a combination of, um, I realize this this is you know a bit difficult to sell to behavior analysts, but it is genuinely the climate. Yeah, it is, it is genuinely the way that people feel at work at that airport. That, that and it has a huge bit to do with it. They're very supportive. Okay, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it's the way that people feel. Yeah, it's, it's the way they're treated. Um, they are treated so much better than most people with that exact same job in a different location. So that's a big part of it. Um, it's the consistency, you know, with which they can expect a result. That's a huge part of it. And that's just down to differential reinforcement. Um, you know, it, not to mention, we would be lying if we didn't say there's an enormous negative reinforcement contingency here, because if you're not behaving safely on the airport, uh, you know, sorry, right. on the apron at an airport, you might get ingested into an engine. So, so this is not like <laughs> not safe for the sake of appearing safe. <laughs> <laughs> I think you, that would sell it to me on its own, I think. Yeah, you think. Do you want to be like that <laughs> cartoons where you're the bird that gets sucked through the engine? Mm -hmm. yes. Oh, wow. So, I mean, I mean, I know we've only really sort of scratched the surface on all of this, but um, I suppose one of the things that's really important well, I think it's becoming more prevalent, and I don't know if I, it's just because of my own frame of reference has changed. Because I've been lucky enough to do this type of have these conversations with really cool people across different 
parts of behavior analysis, if you like, or different applications rather. Um, I know, you know, we've, we've been interacting a little bit more lately because of, uh, because of the, the UK SBA and it's kind of yeah. having to be thrust forward a little more now seeing as the BACB have kind of put the clock on their support for kind of global um, uh, oversight or, or backing. Um, notwithstanding you know some of the nuances there but it's really interesting to me that the UK have got a chance now to kind of take not just OBM but maybe gerontology and other you know other aspects sports applications I know there's colleagues that are into that yeah. uh, and kind of really have it have a place within the UK society for behavior analysis uh, and it, obviously you're, you're involved in that where do you see I guess the, the future of uh, behavior analysis and seeing as I know, I know we're only a very small place, but given that we're we're looking at this with great intent at the moment, where do you see the kind of, uh, I guess, positioning of a of a of an organisation that is having to manage many different contingencies, many different I guess cultures and climates for behaviour analysts in, in the UK across many different arenas. PBS didn't mention either, um, and there are many I'm probably not remembering at this point in time. Do you kind of see the solution to knitting all that together being based in an OBM in terms of being able to mobilise a group of behavioural scientists to be uh, uh, keyed into the same kind of set of principles or guiding uh, guiding ethos? Or do you see it uh, as lots of different contingencies that are brought together in a different way? Do you know, there's... There's no way to answer that question or even comment on it without um, having my own values really transparent. <laughs> okay. And so I, I'm going to acknowledge that bias right now. Sure. To me, what I personally would like to see, um, and I've said it in several forums before, but I, I feel like it is critical for the longevity of our field um to expand sort of our our competence across a breadth of applications so we are highly competent we're not the finished article by any means we've got lots to learn still when it comes to intellectual and developmental disabilities right we are well established i'll say that <laughs> mm. um there are so many other applications of the science that if we can um, if we can create practitioners who are really good at what they do, um, there is really the opportunity to make an incredible impact in so many different applications, I think. Um, you know, I love that health and fitness is is starting to become more popular. Um, you know, there are just, there's so many different ways that we can help. And, and if we are focused on that, right, If because it's not in any way to discount the importance of, of sort of regulating our field in the UK to make sure that consumers are protected. That's hugely important. Um, but because there are so many more behavior analysts that are working with individuals with autism, um, the conversations that that we're going to have as a field in the UK are going to be largely where they should be given the percentage of practitioners that are working in that way. 
So we have lots of conversations, as we should, about consumer protection. We're we're now, uh, you know, trying to apply to become to be regulated primarily for the purpose of consumer protection. Um, so what I would like to see is to sustain that effort exactly as it is, because I think it's going in the right direction, um, and to simultaneously make sure that every step we take is taken with the thought in mind that will this help us to expand our breadth over time? Um, and I do think, you know, I think we're doing it, it pretty well at, at the moment. I think we've got our mind on scaling back to the really critical core elements of being a behavior analyst to allow in the future <laughs> for us to attract a, a broader variety of practitioners to the field. So I often say um, I would be blissfully happy if I thought I could send an MBA student onto an OBM module, right? Or a behavior analysis module. To me, it's it's got to happen that way. And, and there's a lot of conversation to be had around demand for services, and it probably has to start there. <laughs> um, but also we need to be prepared to provide really, you know, competent practitioners. So it, you've got to pay attention to both at the same time, I think. Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it's... It's like, and the reason why I asked you, I think, is because you, you got this kind of grasp on scale mm. that I think most people wouldn't have, or at least if they don't work in the type of industry or the type of way that you work that would have, because it, it is a big question, isn't it? I mean, it's not just, I mean, I suppose to a certain extent, when you're kind of in, in that arena, particularly in the UK, particularly around the society that's kind of relatively young, like it's only been, I, I lose I'm track. Very young, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, obviously, it's kind of coming off the back of, you know, most of the practitioners in the space who are in those types of spaces where we're discussing this are going to have anywhere between like five and 25 years of experience within the UK and others, if we're lucky to have people come in from other parts of the world or other experiences may have longer. So, you know, but still, I suppose, relatively young, but it, it's becoming more of a scaled thing and actually really trying to I guess pull together because I, I kind of feel like there's a, there's even within that kind of upper echelon of, of longer experience there are also other areas that aren't necessarily focused in the UKSBA actually so if you think of the people that are in that space I can think of two or three other groups of people that exist in a very in a very similar uh, echelon but aren't yet keying into the UKSBA as their kind of yep. guiding yep. light or um, and, and this is a values conversation too, for sure, because there, I think I would be remiss to insist that there's a right or a wrong answer to this. So mm -hmm. I'm going to give you my opinion. <laughs> in, yeah, sure. my, in my opinion, I think we should be as collaborative as humanly possible. I think it, we need to be welcoming of all applications of behavioral science. Um, for a huge list of reasons, right? Not just to make sure that people associated with behavioral science are doing good work, um, you know, but but to make sure that, again, that, that systems are in place to support them, to attract more people to the field so that we can contribute more to society. Um, I, you know, there's just so, there's so many ways to apply behavioral science. And the reality of it is, depending on how you apply it, you're gonna say it different. You're going to adopt different terminology. You're going to treat in a different way. You're going to practice in a different way. Um, there, there is no such thing as, you know, again, my opinion. <laughs> if 
we know the science, yeah? So if you're in line with the science, and if you're treating in a way that is ethical, to me, um, that can encompass so many different applications. Um, so I, I think, you know, for for those of us like me, who came from quote unquote ABA, <laughs> we need to to be willing to think about, okay, what what's so important about ABA to me, right? What's so important about behavior analysis to me? Um, and do a little bit of soul searching and, you know, hopefully come to the conclusion that what's important is understanding and adding value to the world, right? To helping people. And that's something that I think we can all agree on. That's something that OBM, I think, certainly can agree on PBS, um, you know, working with all varieties of individuals um, in several different ways. So there, you know, for ACT, for example, mm. completely different population would be targeted, but very similar values, I would think, mm. um, and very similar desired outcomes. So if we can start to kind of intentionally perpetuate that in our own field, right? Here's what's important. Yes, it could look different. Yes, other people do it different ways, but still in line with the same science and in an ethical way. Um, yeah, to, to me, again, it's that's a values conversation, <laughs> but that's where yeah. I sit. <laughs> well, well, totally. And funnily enough, I just um, I was uh, listening. I, I don't have time to sort of sit and read these days, so I've got I've gone down the route of um, audiobooks. Oh, love audiobooks. <laughs> yeah, other, I mean, the, some of them are better than others simply by the by virtue of who's reading them. But I, I was um, a friend of mine recommended uh, "Think Again" by Adam Grant, which was uh, just a way to kind of reframe things. And mm -hmm. there's another book I forget who wrote it, and the title I'm not sure I can say the title out loud, but it's "The Art of Not Giving a," and then oh right, yeah, blank. <laughs> And and they represent that in that both of those books have a similar theme in that way and it, and they it's essentially don't sweat the small stuff like find find out what's important to you and and whether or not you have a problem or not. Um, I, and I'm I'm oversimplifying it massively, but the the point is is that I I would tend to agree with you like you, you need to I think we I can't remember if we said it off air or on air about you know understanding what the outcome is and why that's important. Yeah. So, yeah, to, to a certain extent, even me asking you questions about what contingency you think is in play at the airport safety side of things is kind of irrelevant if you think the outcome is. It's really easy. Do you know what? It's really easy in working um, with non-behavior analysts to just drop the things that are critically important <laughs> to our science, right? <laughs> yeah. Honestly, because I'm going to be the only one in the room that would ever see value in something like baseline data. Fortunately mm. for me, it's available, right? So with the program we described, um, we've got years and years of, of safety data. So we can see, and I should have mentioned this earlier, we can of course see that actually since we've started this program, incidences are so far, so far decreased that this approach, the combination of the safety stack, which includes the safety leaders program, um, has been adopted by three other airports to date, um, and you know, on track to become sort of industry best practice. Mm. So, so you're absolutely able to point to the data and say, okay, this is the only thing we've changed, and and here's the result. Yeah, it's good. Safety is much much improved. Um, but you would not be surprised to hear that anytime we discussed this with a new airport, they're largely 
more interested in how I do it, mm. right? How can I do this at my airport? What are the barriers? What are the challenges? What's the reality? What's this going to cost? <laughs> um, they're much more intrigued by that than they are about the numbers. Sure. Of, of course, it's critically important to them that people are safe at their airport. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but what I am saying is people are more responsive to things like industry best practice and seeing how it can improve their day-to-day -day lives mm. than they are interested in, in looking at the cold, hard numbers. So it's it's easy for me. <laughs> I mean, proof in, in how I just described the program. I didn't mention the safety data one time um, <laughs> because it's not something I'm typically asked about. <laughs> No. <laughs> well, it's, it, it is interesting where it finds itself, isn't it? Because it's, unlike when you're trying to approach something scientifically, you can in the real world, you can work off inference and relationships and the feeling much more than you can in other ways. And in fact, the the the, con, uh, the focus of your industry, I suppose, it's it's less about fundamental uh, repertoires, I suppose, which would be much more the focus if you're thinking about education with this the special education special educational needs world where you're actually having to build repertoires on the ground up you've got a whole population that are uh, competent if you like of you know self-care understanding they have to go to work all that type of stuff and you can take a lot for granted in that way but then um i suppose some of the smaller things you can tweak have a much larger effect because they are dealing with the fundamental of behavior and the behavior science as opposed to you know this kind of building blocks approach or the fundamentals in, in that way well it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you and i feel like if i were to ask you any more questions we'd get as much uh, enthusiasm from every every sector that you've worked in so i can only thank you for your time um i don't want to take any more of it so Thanks again. The, the podcast will be available to people. There'll, there'll be the kind of the, the usual kind of um, mechanisms for getting the CEUs that are available. Um, I'll kind of pick your brains offline, I think, about sort of seminal texts that we can list for people um, mm -hmm. who are genuinely interested in, in OBM and want to kind of find out a bit more. But recognising that it, it genuinely is like its, its own field, its own set of expertise, and you, you can't just simply stumble into it because you're a behaviour analyst, which is... Uh, yeah. Sad, sad truth. You can stumble into it. I would just suggest that you stumble into it in a very controlled, systematic way. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, I think we'll stop. Fantastic. Listen, thanks again, Leah. And um, hopefully we'll speak uh, soon. Sounds good. Thanks. <laughs>